Uh, if you would, please open your Bibles to uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll be finishing out the chapter, looking at verses 16 through 21. Again, 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. We come towards the tail end of chapter 1 uh, as basically uh, you know, Peter's antidote towards uh, what he's about to get into, which is namely false teachers and false prophets, those who are trying to uh, denigrate the word of God uh, through their falseness. And so Peter is establishing this truth uh, that first and foremost, that believers are to confirm their election and calling, uh, who they are in Christ Jesus. And then the foundation of that knowledge is from uh, scripture alone, from God's scripture. And so uh, we'll read verses 16 uh, through 21. This is Second Peter chapter 1, 16 through 21. Hear now God's word. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Let us go to him once more in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the truth of scripture. We thank you for uh, your word that you've given to us. We thank you for the word incarnate. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey the glorious truths that you have in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so Peter, off the bat, he's dealing with really a question that, that we face often today, and that is, what is truth? Um, <clears throat> it's become seemingly an ever-prevailing question that we've asked, especially in, uh, in our own time, uh, whether or not we can discern truth, whether or not we can know uh, that there is a truth, that maybe your truth is different from my truth, and so on and so forth. And, and for a couple hundred years now, uh, we've, we've prided ourselves as uh, human beings in science and technology as these uh, various proofs, as the objective standards by which we measure things uh, throughout our lives. Um, and even people uh, attack uh, those that maybe hold to a supernatural religion or some type of supernaturalism. Um, but science is really you know, the pinnacle of, of man's achievement, of our ability to discern between what is true and what is false. If it can't be tested through the scientific method, then it's to be thrown out uh, and put aside. And renowned uh, atheist Richard Dawkins, he writes regarding this truth, he says, the history of science's increasing knowledge, especially during the past four centuries, is a spectacular cascade of truths following one on the other. Now, 
It's a bit ironic when we uh, break down that, that worldview and, and that aspect of truth. Now, science for the longest time has established these truths uh, that, are, that are universal truths. They've existed uh, regardless of one's feeling. But even now, uh, very prevalent in our own age today, uh, where typically or, or in the past you've had uh, science be able to determine whether or not uh, the gender is male or female, uh, now we've taken science out of the picture. We've taken away the objective standard of truth to come up with our own truth, with the, the plethora, the panoply of genders uh, that exists today. And, and really, science and naturalism, what used to be the hallmark of truth in our own age, has now become the object of subjectivism uh, that they've once uh, critiqued. And really, it's, it's no surprise that in this age that we live in that people are seeking the truth. We, we want to know and seek the truth, yet uh, the, the question or, or what people typically bring up, as I said earlier, is, well, if it's my truth and it's not your truth, well, as long as my truth isn't harming you or doesn't hurt you, then it's okay to have. But it's often said that the truth hurts. And so we look at this, we look at the way in which society is moving and this questioning of the truth, questioning of God's word, uh, but it's really not much of an invention. It's not something that just sprung up since the Enlightenment, since Immanuel Kant and others. Really, if we look at it, if we open our, our Bibles to Genesis, we have the questioning of God's word, of God's truth, an objective truth that stands the test of time. It started in the garden. It started with the serpent. God had given Adam and Eve his creation, commanded them not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does the serpent do? He doesn't try to tell them something else. He questions God's truth. He says, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees? You can't eat from any of them. And he begins this attacking of the truth, attacking of God's word over and over, culminating in the very fact that when God said, when they eat of it, in that day you will surely die, you will die, die, Satan says, well, you won't surely die, you won't actually die. This, this questioning of God's truth began in the garden, it will continue uh, its assault throughout the ages, we won't escape from it. And Peter is telling us, really, to summarize, and in the context as well, uh, before he brings in false teachers, false prophets, he's saying, here is the standard of truth, the objective truth right here. It is God's word. And he also provides some subjective facts as well, that he was an eyewitness there. He was there. He saw the resurrected Christ. He was with Christ during his ministry. And so basically what, what Peter is proposing to us, what he's telling us, is that we need or we should believe God's word because ultimately the word of God comes from God himself. It derives from God. Therefore, we should trust it. And so how does Peter articulate uh, this truth in this passage? Well, he does so in three ways. We'll look at the truth of God's word from the apostles in verses 16 through 18. Secondly, the truth of God's word from the prophets in verses 19 through 20. And then finally, the truth of God's word from the spirit in verses 20 through 21. Again, the truth of God's word from the apostles, from the prophets, and then from the spirit. 
So our first point, the truth of God's word from the apostles. And so Peter is establishing this truth right off the bat, saying that they didn't, uh, they didn't follow these cleverly devised myths. They, were, uh, they weren't caught up in this mythological behavior that uh, was befitting of Greek and Roman culture. So there's a bit of an apologetic characteristic that Peter is proclaiming. He's saying, we're not following these other ancient myths, these ancient gods who you can't see, who you can't touch, who you know nothing really about. We're not following those myths. Jesus wasn't some fable like, like Zeus or Achilles. Rather, um, he, he was a foundational truth that Peter saw Jesus himself. He was there. He was an eyewitness. And similarly, Peter's not just saying, just take my word for it. I was there. Don't worry. Uh, take my word for it and, and let it be. He's saying, no, we, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. <clears throat> So the we is, is indicative of other apostles that, we, that he was with. In the, in the opening of this letter, right, he says, Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says, and then we, we were all witnesses of this occurrence. And Paul, likewise, if you remember back to 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8, he belabors the point that he himself was also an eyewitness of Christ uh, in his glory and resurrection. He says this, uh, that he, referring to Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." Now, it's interesting that uh, Paul is, is attributing this eyewitness account to the other apostles. But not only that, he's saying that Christ appeared also to 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, most of whom are able to refute Paul's claim in writing this letter, most of whom could say, yeah, Paul's just making all this up. We, we really didn't see that. We were just hallucinating or, or just uh, were caught up in the moment. No, Paul is saying, go and fact check me. There are people who have also seen Christ. And so too, Peter is saying the same thing, that they made known, they were eyewitnesses to the glory of Christ. Likewise, John, in the opening of his uh, letter in 1 John 1 and verse 3, says this, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, that which we have seen and heard we also proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Often when we test truth or we test eyewitness accounts, whether they're a myth or fable, it, it always gains a little more respect if there was somebody there. You know, if, if you have a court case and there was a car accident, the more eyewitnesses you can gather at the case will, will uh, let you determine whether or not what person A or person B is saying, whether it's factual or false. And so Peter is saying, I'm not just me alone, but there were others with me who witnessed, who were eyewitnesses to Christ being present on earth. And I think it's interesting when we look at this, when we, when we read this, and when even skeptics think about this, 
We're so apt to read biographies uh, of, of great people, not just uh, Christian biographies, but uh, world leaders. We read biographies about them. Various historical uh, uh, biographers will look through their life history, gather all the facts as much as they can, publish it. We read it and we say, well, that's exactly how that person's life played out. We're so quick to grasp the truth about people that weren't really there that are just gathering facts together. Uh, and it's interesting that, that we hold to those truths, we hold to those realities, yet at the same time, often we look at what scripture says and we say, well, I don't know if I can believe that truth. That's, that's a little difficult for me. Yet Peter and Paul and many others, as we'll see later, uh, were there. They're saying, no, it's true. Believe us, it is true. It's also interesting that we often... Uh, especially today in, in our uh, social media environment, we're so apt to read a, an easy 150-character tweet or Facebook post and say, well, that's truth. This person's in a position of authority, so I'll listen to them. But then when we look at Scripture, we say, well, yeah, there may have been a bunch of people inspired by God through his Spirit, but I don't really want to hold to that because that, that kind of challenges me. But Peter's saying the truth was witnessed. It is the truth. And second to that, or, or to elaborate on that, this, this whole idea of it being uh, not a myth was the very fact that Peter was an eyewitness. Now, it's interesting, uh, this Greek word for eyewitnesses, so it can have the same uh, definition that we would often think of as an eyewitness, whether someone or something had a firsthand experience uh, with an event that occurred. That makes sense. That's, that's what an eyewitness is. But it's interesting, uh, in the Greek, it also has a nuance as well. So not only is it someone who saw something happen, but the word itself is designated to those who have been initiated into the highest grade of the mysteries. So not only was Peter merely just an eyewitness and saw some things happen, but in terms of the Greek used... He was, he was designated by the Lord himself to understand these great mysteries that Christ was proclaiming. I mean, Peter witnessed nearly the totality of Christ's entire ministry. If we think back to his life, he was called out uh, from his job as a fisherman in Matthew 4. He was one, uh, one of the first called. He was in that inner circle with Christ as well. Uh, he experienced great miracles of Christ in calming the storm. Uh, in walking upon water, which would have been absolutely absurd for a fisherman who is used to spending the majority of his life out on the water to experience these great wonders, these great things. He was there upon uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, which the present passage uh, is discussing from Matthew 17. Not only that, but he also abandoned Christ during Christ's hour, during his journey to Golgotha, during his journey to being crucified uh, upon that cross. And not only that, but he saw the risen Christ and then helped proclaim the gospel. So the, the very truth of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the totality of Christ's ministry was witnessed firsthand by Peter himself. So he's saying, I was an eyewitness of this. So what exactly did Peter eyewitness? Now we're not just talking merely about he saw some things happen, but he says this, he says, um, he talks about uh, making known to us in verse 16, the power and coming 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he wasn't experiencing just some random events and just happened to be there. Uh, He saw Christ in both his power and in his coming, often referred to as the shorter catechism says, his Christ's humiliation, that is his coming, his coming in the flesh, his being born of a woman, and also his power, his exaltation, his rising again from the dead. Again, catechism, Shorter Catechism uh, 27 talks about his humiliation and uh, consistent in his being born and that in a low condition, he was made under the law, undergoing all the miseries of this life, the wrath of God included. The curse of death on a cross and being buried and continuing in that death for a time. Christ endured this in his coming, but also in his power, and this is what Peter is proclaiming, that death couldn't hold him, that his exaltation consisted in him rising again from the dead, being seated at the right hand of God the Father, and in judging the earth at the last day. So both his power and his coming is what Peter is making known. He's not just making some facts, some blanket statements about Christ and his ministry. He's saying, this is what Christ came to do, to save sinners. And he's also providing for us his own apostolic authority as one who was designated specifically by Christ. Again, we think back to that term that he was given the mysteries of Christ's ministry. He was imparted that as an apostle. He wasn't just merely someone who saw some things happen. And how often, again, in going back to biographies or what we read on social media, how often are we so quick to revere uh, what people say, those whom we hold up to a high standard or who we believe are experts in the field, we just grasp onto what fallible men and women have to say, who may or may not be experts in the very field that they claim, but we, we automatically listen to that as if that was truth. But Peter here is saying, no. I was there. God's word is truth. Should we not also listen to what God has to say about particular issues? The obvious answer is yes, we should. Therefore, we should believe God's word. Why? Because the word comes from God himself. And the truth of that word comes or was spoken, excuse me, by the apostles. And secondly, we'll see the truth of God's word from the prophets as well. So Peter's demonstrating not only his apostolic authority, but also that of the prophets. He's not only verifying his own authority, but going back to the Old Testament, those who were also sent by God, which was accompanied often by signs and miracles to affirm that they were called by God, just like Peter in the beginning of Acts, and saying that it was more fully confirmed. So the term more fully confirmed can also be translated as most sure or guaranteed. And Peter is basically attributing his authority to be on par with that of the prophets. Both the prophets and the apostles were sent by God. Therefore, we would do well to listen to what they have to say. And so in that, he gives some illustrations of what this prophecy is like. And the first is that prophecy is reckoned to a light. He calls it a lamp shining in a dark place. 
We see the fourth telling of God's word, the declaration that God's word is true, being a light upon our path. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 105, and verse 130, he says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. So also John writes of the very light of Christ in his incarnation. He says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world from John 1, 4 and 5. So we have this light analogy or this light motif, if you will, this light theme pervasive throughout. And why is that? It's because... Uh, As John says, the darkness has not overcome it, and it cannot overcome it. Now, I've heard this analogy several times, but I think it's so appropriate when we think about light and darkness. So if we were to turn off all the lights in the sanctuary right now, and it was pitch black outside, we could light a tiny lighter, and that lighter would stay lit. The darkness, no matter how dark it is around us, would not be able to overcome that light, no matter what. It doesn't matter how dark you try to make a room, darkness can never overcome light. And so too, Peter is saying that the light of Christ, that the very word of God is that light which shines in dark places. Or it'd be similar to watching a sunset on the beach or, or a sunset um, uh, you know, in the city, and you have these city lights that are on during the daylight. They don't look like they're really doing anything because the sun's still out. As the sun begins to set and it becomes darker and darker and darker, doesn't matter how much the sun dissipates, those lights will still shine bright. Only light can overcome the darkness. Darkness cannot overcome the light. And so, too, we have prophecy uh, from the prophets in terms of the Messiah as well. And Peter is referencing uh, this term morning star rising to that of Christ. Now, it's a little in-depth. We'll have to go to the Old and New Testament to really see this play out. Uh, But the first instance we have of this morning star is from Numbers 24, 17. It was uh, Balaam's final oracle, and it's in reference to the Messiah Uh, The text reads as such, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now, obviously, that's, that's twofold. It's looking forward both to David and his reign in the Davidic kingdom and establishing the monarchy, a man after God's own heart, But befitting of biblical prophecy, it has that dual fulfillment. It also looks forward to Christ, that scepter not leaving Christ's hand. He is the morning star who is reigning, who is seated again, as the catechism says, at the right hand of God the Father. But that's not the only instance where we have this morning star reference. Twice, uh, John writes in Revelation concerning this. Uh, The first reference is Revelation 2 verses 25 through 28, and the second is Revelation 22, 16. So I'll read two uh, from Revelation 2 first. Uh, During his admonition, during Christ's admonition to the churches, he says this, Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, 
To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. So there's a guarantee from Christ that those who will persevere until the end, through their union with Christ, being adopted, being sons and daughters, being united by Christ's righteousness, will be given that morning star, will be given that title of kingship as, as rulers in the new heaven and the new earth. But not only that, this is, this is really where it speaks uh, so clearly of Christ and, and Peter's reference to this light theme, uh, which pervades the, the entire, entirety of scriptures. <clears throat> and here in Revelation 22.16, again referring to that morning star, referring to Christ, we have that blessed day when we are with him in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what our Lord says. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. See, so Christ, or the word of God in and of itself, it's, it's foundational, this very truth that Peter's giving us. Remember back to Paul reminding us that the very foundation of this is on the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being that cornerstone. Christ Jesus being that point of failure where without him the entire thing would collapse. <clears throat> and this truth is not merely just built upon the prophets and the apostles, those who were sent from God, but the truth is established by the great prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, whose words never fail and never fall void. This is a more sure foundation. This is what we have to hold on to. And Jesus tells a parable of this very idea in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Our Lord says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So Peter's call for us, again, is steadfastness in the foundation of God's truth. This foundation can't be overcome by floodwaters or by worldly things, by our own sinful desires. It stands firm regardless of where we are. It is foundational. It is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. It stands the test of time. So again, Peter is calling us to believe God's word because the word comes from God himself as spoken from the apostles, as spoken from the prophets. And finally, our third and final point, the truth of God's word from the spirit. We can really see Peter just building or, or compounding on this, this theme throughout the, the latter half of chapter one. He's deriving it from man's authority, from being sent out by God. But ultimately, the final, infallible, not failing, inerrant, without error, all-sufficient 
Truth is from God's word, God's holy and inerrant word. It is an objective truth. It exists far beyond our feelings, our desires, our own intuitions. God's word is true. God's word was true before we were born. God's word is true right now. God's word is true when we will pass away. It does not matter where we fit into that spectrum. God's word is truth because it is from God himself. And again, Peter is really focusing in on the, uh, the reliability of Scripture. And again, it's serving as this polemic before he starts talking about these false teachers who are bringing in these very uh, destructive heresies, who are denying the, own, the very master who bought them. He's saying, here's the truth. The truth wasn't just from people who had some good ideas about some things, who were influenced by Greek philosophy. No, They were men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what are the various ways in which uh, he's spoken, or God has spoken these truths? Now, it's interesting, when when I first looked at this, uh, my my second go-to in thinking about the inerrancy of Scripture, about God's Word, was 2 Timothy 3.16, which we're all sure with. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable in all aspects of our lives, but then I started thinking, where, where else in the New Testament are people attributing the reliability and the truthfulness of God's word? Well, here's just a few. Matthew, in the recording of Jesus being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, writes about Christ himself being the totality of the Old Testament. Similarly, Luke, towards the end, or, or, excuse me, towards the end of his gospel, In talking about Jesus' interaction on the road to Emmaus and Jesus saying, everything that was written about me, the entire law was written about me and testifies of, of me. So Timothy, or excuse me, Paul, Matthew, and Luke thus far. John as well. In finishing up his uh, gospel account, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Similarly, James talks about the practical aspects of being doers of God's word. Why should we be doers of God's word if they're false? It's not false. It's an objective truth. It is true. Or similarly, the author of Hebrews, that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It stands the test of time. We're also from Jude, regarding the foundation of the word being upon the apostles and the prophets. And even the present text, we have Peter talking about it as well. And again, these are only New Testament examples. I mean, there's countless uh, discussions in the Old Testament. We think back to the psalm we sang, Psalm 119, about the reliability of the trustworthiness of God's word, being that light, that lamp upon our feet as we walk through darkness. The totality of scripture is saying that scripture is true from the various authors, from their various stages of life, from their own uh, interactions. They know that scripture is true because there is one author of scripture. It's derived from the Holy Spirit himself. As one commentator writes, scripture is not a record of primitive, fallible religious opinion, but the very revelation of the one who is truth, namely the Lord himself himself 
And the Spirit of the Lord grants us understanding of his word to his people. Scripture is sufficient because it is the truth of God, because it derives from God himself. And so why is this, why is this ultimately important? Why do we need to have this conversation anyway? There are several reasons we could go uh, and talk about why Scripture is important, why this truth is important, but I'll, I'll leave you here with a few. And first and foremost, we have a God who has given us his very word so that we can know more about him, know more about his saving graces, more about Christ Jesus, more about how to love him, how to serve him, how holy he is. Secondly, we have a God, again, who loves us enough to provide an account of the gospel of Christ for our salvation. We have a God who cares about us, who, who used, who spoke through men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter writes, to give us the very good news of Christ in the Bible, in Scripture. And thirdly, we have a God who still speaks today. Now, I'm qualifying that. I want to make that very clear. This is not through self-proclaimed apostles or prophets, all, the, all this other superfluous ideology that we have, not through mystical experience or anything like that, but we have a God who speaks. When we read the word of God, we have God himself speaking to us. Or as the Shorter Catechism again says, through the preaching of God's word, the, the ordinary means of grace, through the sacraments, through prayer, Christ is communicating himself to us through that. I'd recently uh, started reading uh, Dr. David Strain's book on expository pr uh, preaching. It's very, very tiny, very brief, but it's very dense, very good. And he talks about this very idea that we're, we're so apt to seek these extraordinary signs and hearing words from God, and we place the preaching of God's scripture, expository preaching, as mundane and boring. We have to sit down and, and hear somebody talk about God. But this, this very word, this very means by which God is communicating himself, it shines in our hearts as it's preached from the preacher, from the very mouth of who God has sent. It is the word of God. God still speaks today, not in new revelation, but he speaks because of what he has written in his word. And fourthly, we have a God who cares about us, who loves us enough, who has planted us in the richest of soils, who feeds us and waters us by his word. We are to read it daily. We are to be nourished and fed by his word. And finally, we have a God whom we should serve by looking to his word, which what principally teaches us what we are to believe and what God requires of us. It is the totality of God's word which we are to rely upon. So because of these great truths, the truth of God's word from the apostles, the truth of God's word through the prophets, the truth of God's word from the spirit, we should therefore believe God's word because it ultimately comes from God himself. And with that, let us pray. <clears throat> Most holy and gracious Lord, we thank you for the very truth of your scripture. We thank you that 
not only one writer has written about the sufficiency of your very word, but multiple have, and it should stand as a testimony to us, as an eyewitness. And Lord, we ask that through your spirit, you would enliven us to receive these truths about your word, Lord, not just the fact that it is true, but that every aspect, every jot and tittle is infallible and inerrant, Lord. Let us hold fast to that. Let it edify us. Let us grow in sanctification. Let us pursue you, O Lord, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.